We're starting a new, turning a, we're turning a leaf this morning. We're starting a new journey together. We, we spent maybe 18 months in Luke, and we finished that up last weekend. And this week, we're starting a new series through the summer. This summer, we're going to be walking through, again, expositionally, we're going to be studying the Bible through 2 Timothy and Ephesians in a combined series. And uh, that, that, you know, the heart behind that series is receiving from Paul these letters that he's writing while in chains. Uh, he's, Paul, at the end of Acts, uh, you see Paul get arrested, and he spends like a, a two-year uh, sentence on house arrest. And in that first sentence, around uh, maybe 62 AD, he writes Ephesians uh, to the church in Ephesus. And then he gets released from that prison term, spends a couple years uh, doing more missionary work, and in, after being released, that's when he writes 1 Timothy, a letter to, to Timothy, kind of this leader in the, in the church in Ephesus, uh, but writing it per- specifically to him, and that, that first letter, 1 Timothy, is addressing this, this growing problem of false teaching in the church. And he's really like encouraging him. Really, the point of the book is kind of like the, when when the gospel is preached, you see it take you see it take root in godliness that comes out in the life of believers. But false teaching doesn't actually have that effect, and that's kind of this overarching theme in First Timothy. But then eventually, Paul gets arrested again under the under the massive repression of Christians by Emperor Nero, and he gets imprisoned again for a second time. And, uh, and he spends a couple years in prison. The end of that, that uh, imprisonment uh, is what most people believe, uh, 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 you know, is the death of Paul, the beheading of Paul uh, under the reign of Nero. But before he actually goes to his death, he's in the, this kind of final imprisonment, and that's where he writes Second Timothy, this letter that we're going to start off studying in the front end of this summer. Both of these books, Ephesians and 2 Timothy, uh, are full of the tender pastoral heart of a father in the faith to a son, urging his people to see the fullness of God, the essence of the church, a calling worth enduring any suffering, and a future promise unmatched in glory. So I'm excited to walk through both these books this summer. Um, you know, we're going to hear uh, next week, we're going to study this amazing passage in 2 Timothy 1 with Melissa. Melissa's going to be leading us the week after that um, is, I can't remember, but, event, you know, eventually, you know, we're going to be hearing from Keisha this summer. We're going to be hearing uh, from Brian this summer. We're going to, Brad Everett is off sabbatical, and we're going to hear from Brad this summer. I'm very, very, I miss Brad so much. He, he knew how to sabbatical. You could not find that man. So this... <laughs> So we're going to see him a couple times this summer, um, but I'm excited to walk in this new, new series with all of you. Um, before we read, what today I have is five verses, this massive uh, 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 chunk for us this morning, five verses. Uh, before you read, I just want to, um, uh, 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 to take a moment to pray, and I think what I'll do this morning is I will read. Uh, if you follow along with me, this, these first five verses of Second Timothy. And then I'll free you to get in groups of three or four and to chew on the passage together. I mean, what could you learn from these five verses? And I thought, man, this is going to be a hard time trying to get some content out of these five verses. But I had, like, I had a hard time narrowing down what it was. I had like 37 ideas. And I had to kind of narrow down what is it that the Lord wants you to hear today. There's so much in these few verses. So... 
Um, let me pray for us, and then if you'd follow along with me and engage this little text together. God, we, in our frailty, in our weakness, God, we submit to you and to the truth of Scripture. God, we, don't, we, we come underneath your word, not over top of it. And so, God, uh, uh, reveal yourself to us today. Speak to us today. Encourage us, challenge us today. Sharpen us by your word. We love you. It's in your name. Amen. 2 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Amen. Go ahead and get with three or four people and um, do a little do a little groundwork on those few verses. What in just few just those five verses on my initial reading? What jumps out at you? What jumps out at you? First thing you kind of notice, and uh, dialogue about that with three or four people around you. Go ahead. Okay, 
We got a couple mic runners. JP. Mikey. Awesome. <clears throat> Wrap up your thoughts. As you're wrapping up, what's maybe something you talked about in your, in your, in your group just now? Maybe something you talked about that, that you'd like to share with the broader community. Contribute to our broader dialogue. Hello? Yes. Over here. That's me. Hey, Irby. I'm speaking on behalf of someone else today. That's great. <laughs> That's my favorite. So these are not my thoughts. <laughs> um, just uh, we brought up in our group the idea of Timothy being this biracial Yes. Even though it's not in the passage, but mm -hmm. his, his mother was Jewish, his dad was Greek, Gentile. Yeah. yeah. And just this idea of how in the Bible God always seems, there's, there's this theme of that. Yeah. I've been reading Acts myself, and there's this idea of like, there's always some kind of like middle man type person that God, or middle woman, mm -hmm. like the woman at the well, the Samaritan, who's mm -hmm. God's always using mm -hmm. in mission. Even Paul was bicultural. Yeah. You know, he was a Jew that was raised in Tarsus. He sort of lived between these two cultures. That's right. And so that was something like, it's not exactly in the passage, but it's something that kind of brought, it was brought to our minds. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a critical part, and we'll mention some of that a little bit later, but it's a critical part of Timothy's story. As we're, because as we're studying this text, we're going to be slowly also getting to know Timothy. And uh, a critical part of his story is his, is his parents, how, he, how Paul ran into him, uh, some of the, the initial things that, you know, and, and his, his uh, uh, cross-cultural uh, um, role in the church there in Ephesus and his cultural upbringing and what that says about God to intentionally choose someone like that to use him in this kind of way but even when just a quick word even when Paul finds him his father is a, a Greek his mother is a Jewish believer uh, uh, so so someone who grew up culturally and religiously Jewish but now has a, a faith in Jesus as Lord died rose and sits at the right hand of the father um, you know, he, Paul finds him in Acts 16 and, and immediately says, you got, we, we, you got to join our missionary crew here. I'd love to develop you. I'd love to mentor him. But Paul, and this is older in life. This is Timothy, like, older in life. Paul actually says, like, requirement number one for you to come on our missionary journeys here is you have to be circumcised. Because he wasn't. Because his father was a Greek. His father was not Jewish. His father was a Greek. But the work that they were doing was always cross-cultural work. And any barrier that their missionary team would have between them and an honest hearing of the gospel, they had to remove those barriers. And so he said, look, we're going to be doing a lot of work in Jewish communities. And if anybody were to ask whether or not you're circumcised, and if the answer to that question was no, it would hinder us to, ha to have a hearing with them of the gospel. And so if you're going to join my crew, this is like front door, front door. If that does not speak to the commitment of Timothy. Creed. <laughs> should I talk about that more or should we go on? What do we, we should just move on. We should move forward. Any other things? Other things? I, yeah, JP's got somebody over here. I, ch I chose the seat that said... View is obstructed. Okay. <laughs> View is obstructed. Yeah. <laughs> um, two things. One, I thought it was really interesting the repetition of lineage that Paul yes. serves God as his ancestors serve God. Yes. And then uh, the faith, which first lived in your grandmother, and then your mother, and then yeah. in you. Yeah. And then the second thing, along with that, is that it's that his faith came through women. Yes. That it wasn't in 
uh, kind of the religiosity that is dominated through men, yes. but is actually faith came through the leadership of women in Amen. his life. Amen. In the deficit of leadership of men yeah. came strong ministry from women, and women who, did not, who were not left unnamed, but women who were named. Lois and Eunice. And the, the, exactly what you're talking about, the, the legacy, the heritage of not just that faith, but now even the leadership and the contribution of those women, Lois and Eunice, on not just Timothy, not just the churches he served, but on the history of Christ, the, the redemptive movement of Christianity in the world. They, they have a place. They have a name in that lineage, that heritage. And for, for their names to be written in that context, in that time, is incredibly redemptive. It's powerful for them to be named. And I think it's important for us to, to, to acknowledge them, to acknowledge their names, to acknowledge what that meant at the time on a day like Pentecost Sunday. I just saw a tweet. I, it was either last night or this morning from uh, Pastor Duke Kwan where he just used this phrase. I'd never heard this phrase before. He, he talked about how Pentecost was the democratization of the Spirit, the democratization of the Holy Spirit, and therefore the democratization of voice and power in the people of God. That the people of God would not, would not actually take their cues of voice and take their cues of, of, of uh, a power from the world, but actually it's a totally different dynamic because of the democratization of the Spirit. That the Spirit of God does not speak through specific people in specific positions, from specific cultures, from specific genders, but that God actually has embodied everyone and can speak through anyone. And therefore, all must be submitted to. We submit to one another because we see the person of Jesus in each person and the dignity of the Spirit in each person. And I just think what a morning to, to run into a text like this where those two women are named, Lois and Eunice, in the legacy of the church. <clears throat> let, me, let, me, um, let me jump in. Uh, I have a maybe what feels like a unique word for our community, and I kind of struggled with it all week, but I just, I just, again, this morning, I was just like, is this really what, God, what you have for us? And I just feel like it is. And last week, um, I, I'm going to tell a story about my son, I, my three-year-old. I didn't ask him for permission. I think he's in here. Sorry, man. Um, but last week, you know, Landon has, you know, he, he uh, and this, I think it's somewhat common for parenting, maybe not universal, but he has this bedtime very long process, uh, and I think that very long process, it's typically, it's, it's like, it's not just bath and get, get your PJs on or whatever, but once you get into his room, that's where the process starts. You get into his room, you put him in his bed, and you've got to read two stories. They, they're the same stories. they got to be read in the same order with the same pitch levels and variations. Uh, then when you're done, you've got you've to pray, and you've got to take some time praying. And you got to end that prayer a certain way. And then once you're done praying, he'll ask for another story. But you have to say no, but he'll ask, and it's just part of the process. And 
and then you, you know, he wants two cars. He wants to sleep with two cars, so you've got to go find the two cars. But if you leave them in the room, that's breaking the rules. They have to be, you have to go out of the room to get the two cars, to bring them into the room, to give them the two cars. Then he wants a Kleenex. He doesn't use the Kleenex, but he wants to have a Kleenex next to him. It ha- and, it, and, it, and it can't be like a crumpled up Kleenex from the night before, and you point to it and you say, you have a Kleenex, it's right here. It has to be a fresh Kleenex, very like not, not, no wrinkles, and it has to be right by his pillow on his bed. Uh, and then he wants you to sing a song, and, you, and there's three songs that we sing. They have to be in the right order. And then the last song, you have to sing not in the bed, but at the door when you're closing the door. That's when you sing the last song. <laughs> So you're singing it through the crack of the door. That's where the last song comes. And if you try to sing three songs in the room and you start leaving the room, he'll ask for a fourth song because you weren't in the door crack singing said song. That's not, that's not how this goes. So I think that this is like a, you know, an, an outgrowth, this, this whole process that he has that, that keeps things keep getting added to it. I think it comes out of something that I've passed on to him. It's this disease called FOMO. You guys know what FOMO is? I'm like stage five FOMO. I think he's stage three, stage four. That's fear of missing out. It's a fear of missing out disease. So he doesn't want to miss out on anything. He wants to delay the bedtime process as much as possible. He doesn't want to miss anything. Last week, we were putting him to bed, and um, gra- Grandma and Grandpa are here, and we were si- Jamie was singing the last song through the crack, and then she's about to, she says, good night, I love you, and, and he says, can, can you send Grandma in to sing one more song? He's always trying to add things to the process. He says, can you send Grandma in now to, to do some bedtime stuff? And Jamie says in the door, she says, I'm, you can, I'll send Grandma in, but you have to promise that you won't scream and whine when she leaves the room. And he's just quiet for a minute, and then he says, I just can't agree to that. I guess I'll just pick my boogers. <laughs> he, said, he said, he said, I can't agree to that. And then he's like scanning the option for things to do. And he's like, I can't agree to that. I guess I'll just pick my nose. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> I guess I'll just pick my nose. It's fine. Go on, mom. Good, we negotiated. You won. You're fine. He's inherited from me. I've passed on to him FOMO. Such like he, he has so much of my personality, but that's like he has a real struggle with missing out on anything. Or, or being alone ever, which is also passed on for me. Every time I come in the house from doing really anything, if I'm coming home from work, if I came home from just an errand, if I came home for, or if I walk in the door from working in the yard or something, he'll tell me immediately walking in the door, he'll say, say Daddy, take off your shoes. Get your shoes off. And I'll, and, or if I walk in the room, he'll be like, get back to that front door and take your shoes off. And I'll be like, um, okay. And then he'll be like, after I take my shoes off, he'll be like, did you wash your hands? And he'll be like, okay, I guess I can go wash my hands. I'll wash my hands, and he'll say, now use the hand sanitizer. He'll point to the bottle. Landon has inherited a unique thing from his mother also, germophobia. So he's very meticulous about cleanliness, and he's, he's on me all the time. He's on me about take your shoes off, no shoes in the house, wash your hands like 13 times a day. He has inherited, Jamie has passed to him a, let's just call it, let's put it in positive, a love for the clean. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a love for cleanliness. You see, we pass things on to our kids every single day. We do so directly, and maybe even more so, we do so indirectly. You don't even know what you're passing on to your kids. And I just wonder this morning, what are they, 
learning about Jesus from us, about the kingdom of God from us. Not just parents, all of us. What is the next, the generation behind us learning from us, directly and indirectly? You see, I think the, the thing I want to say this morning is that a, this thing that Paul calls a sincere faith, a sincere faith is our greatest inheritance to receive from the generation above us and to pass on to the generation below. That a model of sincere faith is an inheritance passed on. It's passed on through parenting, through spiritual parenting, because it takes a village, many fathers, many mothers, and through intergenerational mentoring. See, Paul identifies this living thing in Timothy that he calls a sincere faith that's been passed through a heritage of faithful parenting, and more particularly, faithful mothering. From grandmother to mother, from mother to son. Parenting is a conduit through which God carries on the message and the modeling of the life in the kingdom under the leadership of Jesus from generation to generation. This is the greatest inheritance that we can live for our kids, the generation behind us. It's not a 401k. It's not a portfolio of assets. It's not a life insurance policy. It's not a legally tightened, documented will. It's not a neatly crafted photo album or 70 of them. It's not the skill to fish or the love for camping. The greatest inheritance we leave for our children is a sincere faith. Not one that's just spoken, but one that's lived out. And if you can receive that, if, you, if you'd agree on those terms with me, it has a few implications for parenting. And I'm just going to talk about parenting for a minute. So those of you who are parents in the room, you know, just stay with me. But those of you who aren't, there's so much more for you here. Just let me get through this. And I'm going to talk about parenting very carefully because I have a three-year-old. You guys understand? I'm not coming at you as somebody like totally qualified, mastered this thing. So I'm just going to offer, if you would agree to that idea that, that, that the greatest inheritance we leave for our kids is the, the proclamation and modeling of a sincere faith, it has a few transcendent implications. I think, uh, uh, and I'm just going to offer a few. I would say an implication of that is that parenting is ministry. That parenting is a calling to be faithful to. And in that, in, within that proposition that parenting is ministry, that parenting is a calling that parents have to be faithful or unfaithful too, I think there's a, there's a spectrum in there to exist and to figure out under the leadership of Jesus, but I think that spectrum has two uh, uh, unhealthy extremes, and I'll just mention both of those. On, one, on the one extreme, don't be unfaithful to your calling to your kids in order to be faithful to your calling to some other people. That some kids can grow up with a bitterness toward ministry or toward, toward the church for no other reason but, besides it, it, but because it took their parents away from them. Don't be unfaithful to your calling to your kids in order to be faithful to your calling to some other people. You, you're called to all of it, and, you can f- and you've got to figure out how to be faithful to all of it. I'm not going to tell you how to do that. You've got to walk with Jesus and learn, and there's a spectrum in there to figure out, and it can be seasonal. But generally, don't, be, don't forget your kids in order to give full attention in your life to some other people. And on the other end of that spectrum, there's one extreme. On the other end of that extreme, don't make your kids your only ministry. 
Because on the one hand, if you, if, you don't, if you aren't faithful to your calling to your kids in order to be faithful to some other calling, you'll, you'll, you'll betray your calling to pass on to your children a, the inheritance of a sincere faith. But I would actually warn that on the other side, if, you only, if, you, if your kids are your only ministry, you don't have anything else to do, that what you pass on to them, you run the risk of it not being a sincere faith. Because, you, because if, if, you, if your kids are your only ministry, you run the risk of never actually inviting them into love and cost and sacrifice and missional risk and discipleship among other people. To model for them what it means to live under the leadership of Jesus among other people as a missionary. And to invite them, to show them that, to see that, to invite them into that. And I think more than often I've seen, and there's a load of data on, on what happens when you, when you exclusively just bubble up your life to your kids as your only ministry. What results is this thing called moral therapeutic deism. Have we heard that term? There's the, it's this idea that, that, that the, the faith that they inherit from us wouldn't be what Paul calls here a sincere faith. What they inherit from us is an, a general belief that God exists and that God exists to comfort us and, to, to, and he wants us to be moral. And that's it. But it doesn't transcend to what it actually to, to the life of Jesus, what it means to embody the life of Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to respond to the leadership of Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to display Jesus, to proclaim Jesus to other people. And so I would just I would just warn, like, be faithful to your kids. And actually, this other thing that you're called to, these other people that you're called to, even if it's not specific, but you're just generally called to make disciples wherever that you're going, that thing isn't actually a threat to your calling to your kids. It's a gift to it. it, it that thing, that other thing you're doing is actually uh, uh, re- necessary, required to help you do ministry to your kids, to pass on a, sin- a sincere faith, to model for them what is a sincere faith. And the last little thing I'll say between those two spectrums is don't leave your life, your missional activity, or your choices to be self-interpreted by your kids. That in, between those two spectrums, when you're just kind of, tra- and I'm not going to tell you how to like, I'm not going to give you like these 10 steps to amazing parenting. Just, you got to live under the grace of Jesus. You got to make mistakes and learn from them. But as you're figuring that out, don't let your kids self-interpret your life. In, include them in the reasons behind some of the, the, the crazy, you know, places your life takes you. Include them in the, the reasons behind uh, uh, the choices that you make. Sometimes include them in the choice itself to discern with you, to, to pray with you, to ask Jesus with you. Don't let your life be self-interpreted by your kids because they, they will almost, I guarantee you, they almost never interpret it the way that it really is, the heart behind it, but include them in it. The Barna Group back in 2013 did an in-depth research study on the children of ministry leaders. Um, and what they were trying to do is they were trying to take this perception that missionary kids and pastor's kids, are, they, just, they just walk away from the faith in droves. And they were just trying to test, is that perception true? And if it is, what are the reasons behind it? And what they actually found is it's not nearly as bad as what people try to make it out to be. Um, but they did find that about, about 40% of kids of ministry leaders go through a significant season of doubt or rebellion or self-discovery. And 33%, one-third of the kids of ministry leaders leave the church to never return. But, but, only 7% of kids of ministry leaders 
stop self-identifying as Christian. Even if they left the church, they don't want anything to do with the church, they still self-identify as Christian in, in the, the ongoing of their life. And those 33% that leave the church to never return, the, the group did this analysis of the reasons contributing to that, to that outcome. Why is that the case? And they, they, they laid out seven main reasons, seven primary reasons, uh, uh, with statistically uh, ranked one through seven of why kids of ministry leaders leave the church to never return. And I just think the top three are really interesting. The first one is that, though, that kids of ministry leaders leave the church never to return because of the unrealistic expectations that others place on them. And I haven't talked about that much here, but I just want to say a word like to each other. Can we not do that to each other's kids? And can we not do that to each other as parents? Like do that massive comparison, that poisonous comparison game of like the great parents, the not so great parents, the crazy kids, the not so crazy kids. And then we kind of like put a little hierarchy in there. It's just like let, let, let's all just let our kids be kids. And let's let all of our parents in the room be parents. Full, and let, let's just be a community full of grace without those, those unrealistic expectations that can poison us. But two and three are the ones that hit on these two ends of the spectrum. Number, the, the second most uh, prevalent reason why those kids leave the church never to return is because, in, in their words, the parents are too busy for them. That's this side of the spectrum. And number three is because the faith is not modeled consistently at home that the faith in which they were witnessing as their parents were ministry leaders was a faith that was somehow not authentic or real, but it was like two different versions of them, publicly and privately. The faith was not modeled consistently for them at home. And the hard news here is that you can be, listen, you can be as faithful as possible to your calling as parents to love your kids, walk with your kids. You can be amazing parents. You can be faithful as possible to passing on an inheritance of sincere faith, but they might not receive it. Because you cannot control your kids, and you have to just admit that and embrace that. You can't take away their human will, and nor should you want to. You shouldn't want that. But you can trust God with your kids. I can trust God with mine. You can even trust God with your teenagers. <laughs> he is inviting you. He is inviting me. He's inviting all of us to co-labor with him in the life of your kids. And are you being faithful to that spiritual leadership in the lives of your kids? I cannot help but notice here in this text, and maybe some of you did too, the void of Timothy's father. There's no mention in this text of Timothy's father, Timothy's father in the lineage of Timothy's development. And as we talked about earlier in Acts 16.1, Paul finds Timothy in Lystra, son of a Jewish mother who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And in the ancient Near East, uh, uh, fathers were responsible for the education of their kids. Those without a living religious father would also learn uh, not just primarily from the mother, but they would also learn from their grandmother. Their grandmother would step into the gap of the father. And so this isn't just like a clean passing of like from grandmother to mother and then from mother to son. Timothy would have received a, a, a huge impartation of learning and wisdom from his grandmother also. 
And I've just been struck all week by this line that, that you'll find all over the place. It's not just here, but in the absence, just think about it, in the absence of Timothy's father, in his development, in this crucial area of what it means to be a human being, Timothy receives this sentiment from Paul. To Timothy, my dear son, my son. I just think Paul's posture here and his understanding of Timothy and Timothy's understanding of him is an invitation for those of you in the room who don't have kids. That there's always a crucial role for you to discover in the lives of not just children in our community, but in the generation behind you. To discover ways to love, to care for, and to invest in the generation behind you. What if, what if, like Timothy, we could look around this room, we could look around the community, we could look around the network, and just like Timothy, we would find many fathers, many mothers. And what if, just like Paul, we could look around this community, we could look around the underground, we could look around the network, and we would find, uh, just like Paul, we would find many sons and many daughters in this community. There's so many of you who I could point to that live this out, people who in this room who don't have kids, but you, you mother other kids. You father other children in this community. I see you doing that. And I just want to say yes to that this morning. And this morning, I just wanted to, uh, to take a moment to specifically highlight, because I think it's a real gift that they offer our community, I wanted to highlight the Ubuntu community as a great example of a community that lives this out that we could, we could all learn from. This last week, I, I, uh, I think it was Monday, there were a few of us went over to the Sekajipo's house, to Will and Evie's house, and I parked my truck, and I'm walking up to their house, and Chris Ryan's at the end of the street, he's on the corner, and I'm walking up into the porch, so I can't see above me, but I just hear this horrendous crash and shatter above me. And I see Chris Ryan at the end of the block look up to the second floor of the house that I can't see. His eyes get wide, and he starts running back to the house. And I'm like, uh, what's happening? And I just kind of walk in the house, and I don't, there's, there's no, nobody's like running around going crazy or anything, like nothing happened. And I walk into the kitchen, and Will and Watson are there, like just talking like nothing happened. And I just guess like, I guess this is fine. I guess maybe nothing, maybe that was normal sound. I don't know what that was. It's totally normal. And we talked for like 10 or 15 minutes. And, a, and a, a, toward the end of just talking with Will and Watson, I just thought, I'm pretty sure something happened. I don't know why we're not talking about it. And I just thought, I'm going to go, ch- I'm just going to go upstairs and see what's going on. Like, I'm just going to go check. And I go upstairs and the, all the kids are playing basketball in this living room on the second floor of the Sekajipo's house. They're just playing basketball, shooting around, laughing, and there's a huge window just shattered. And there's just glass all over outside on, like, the roof. And they shattered this window, and they just kept playing. (laughs) And I was just thinking, like, shh, I don't want to go tell Will. (laughs) That's not what I want to do. And I think Chris Ryan went down and told him about it, because when I came down, the mood had changed. (laughs) In the living room. And all the, all the kids came down, and, and they came in the living room, and they all just kind of like came and stood by Will, and they just said, like, like and, and Amarius is just saying, like, Dad, we're so sorry. We didn't mean to do it. We're going to be more careful. But the other kids were, like, saying, saying, like, Uncle Will, we're so sorry. Uncle Will, we're so sorry. And if you're around them, it's not, not, not just a moment like that. It's like all their moments. It's like, it's like they're, just a bi- they're just a big family. All those kids have so many fathers, so many mothers. They're caring for them, investing in them. 
and they just like live in this web of mentoring. You know, they take seriously that old, you know, phrase, it takes a village. They take it seriously. And I just think it's an amazing picture, an amazing uh, a gift if our larger community did that to some degree for each other. It, it really tried to look for ways to care for, love each other's kids. Not just like, hey, your kid's over there and do your thing with your kid or whatever, and here's mine and don't, don't try to influence my kids. I'm not sure about you or whatever. Just, but being a little bit more open to caring for one another's children, walking with one another's children. See, we don't just invest in our own kids, but we find ways to love and care for each other's too. We labor as a community in the work of passing on the inheritance of sincere faith to the next generation. And I think a good symptom to look at, to discover how much a community has embraced this value for passing on sincere faith as an inheritance would be this. If you're just looking at a com community and wondering, I wonder if they've embraced that value as a community, if they're, if they're really walking in that value as a, as a community, taking responsibility for the generation below them. I would say go to, go to kids' church and see if kids' church is just overflowing with help. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Is kids' church just this vibrant, flourishing space? They just have so much help. You know, everybody just goes once a month. They got plenty going on, you know. <clears throat> If not, I mean, if yes, if kids' church is overflowing, that would mean that, that not just people in the room who are parents are actually like saying, hey, I want to I contribute to kids' church, but there's people in the room, there's people in the community who don't perceive this moment as a program to consume or spectate, but they perceive this moment as a moment in the life of a family to participate in. And if that's true, that means some, sometimes... It'd be great, actually, for me not to participate in this life, this moment in the family, not in here, but to actually care for, for the kids, love on the kids, teach the kids, eat snacks with the kids, walk the kids across the hub to the bathroom. Gosh, what a journey. <laughs> you know, just, just try to find this little, this little space of responsibility in, in your own you know, place in the community to care for the kids of this community. But if not, if that's not the case, if Kids Church is always struggling for volunteers, is always struggling for teachers, if Midway is always struggling for help and for teachers, it means, one, uh, you just didn't know you could, you could help that way, which now you know. It's okay. You know now. There's maybe like a little deficit of information here. But two, maybe you knew that was a thing, but you thought you had to be a parent to help it, and I'm just going to tell you that's not the case. But you, too, can have like a role, a space to love and care for the next generation, the kids in this community, and one that I think you should take seriously. Uh, uh, but worst case scenario, it's, just not, it's not just a matter of, of not having the information or not thinking you're qualified. Worst case scenario, you, you knew it was something, a value of the community. You knew it was something that you, you actually should live into, and you just chose not to. And I just, I just want to say, like, I just, I just really want the network to be like an amazing space for our children. And I think we all have a role to play in that, to create a flourishing environment for our kids. Even you who thought, like, that's just never a space for you, maybe reconsider. Think about it. <clears throat> this inheritance of sincere faith is passed on through parenting, through spiritual parenting. But in the end, what we're alluding to here in both cases, whether you're talking about parents or kids or not parents or teenagers or adults, this inheritance is passed on through a lineage of what I would call intergenerational mentoring. 
these verses are, just like Josh mentioned in the Bible study, these verses are comprehensively screaming the value, the goodness, the gift, and the necessity of intergenerational mentoring, not just for the sake of the mentees, the people receiving mentoring, but also for the sake of the mentors. What does Paul say? He doesn't say, I'm, I'm excited for you to come because I've got a bunch I need to teach you and there's, you, you, there's a bunch of spaces I need to develop you. He says, I'm excited to, for you to come because it, it brings joy to me. It fills me with joy to see you. And I just think like the, the people who have been doing this for a while, the people who are really seasoned in ministry actually need, for the sake of their joy, need mentees who are actually walking with them and they're passing things on. There's something, that, there's something about your joy in that. The sustainability of you in ministry by being in that kind of work. And I just think this, this word of intergenerational mentoring, it's an important word for us because I think the underground is more intergenerational today than it's ever been. And that's not because we've done like a stellar job at like attracting retirees and getting a bunch of people in the room. And, and it's because the original people have been here for 20 years and they have kids, you know. We're, very, we're more intergenerational by consequence than we ever have been before. But the reality is we've got teenagers, we've got 20-somethings, we've got college students, we've got professionals, we've got 30s and families, we've got uh, 40s, we've got, we've got uh, uh, single and professional, we've got retirees, we've got empty nesters, we've got people all over the board here. And if the, as we've grown into being more intergenerational, we can actually leverage that, we can take that seriously, or... Uh, uh, it's a gift that could be squandered. The intergenerational makeup of the underground could have a neutral effect if we just coexist and never relate to each other. The intergenerational makeup of the underground could have a negative effect if each generation starts turning on the other generation. The younger generation looks at the older generation and says, gosh, we, I don't want to do things your way anymore. And you guys just holding on to the old days and we, we're doing a new thing here. The older generation could look at the younger generation and be like, you, you've been here a minute. Sit down. You know, like, like, we, like, learn from us. We've got stuff to say, and there can just be all this frustration, and that frustration is why it's more common for churches to be homogeneously generational than to be intergenerational. Or that intergenerational makeup of the underground could have a transformational impact on who we are and on the future of this community. And the way to actually take responsibility for that is through mentoring. For the younger generation to actually look to the, to the older and more seasoned generation, people more seasoned in ministry to you, with curiosity, to approach them with questions, uh, 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 to, to ask for dinner or coffee or something, and, to, just, and to, to take some of the things you're wrestling with internally, and instead of doing it by yourself, just say, somebody, other people have walked this, and they've got experience, they've got things to say, and it means for the, the older, more seasoned generation to be more open and more available and more willing to contribute to younger leaders in that way who are coming with questions, who are coming wanting to learn. You don't have to figure out how to study the Bible devotionally on your own. You can learn with others. You don't have to figure out how to engage personally and intimately with the Holy Spirit on your own. You don't have to figure out how to discern your calling on your own, and you shouldn't. You don't have to figure out how to start a microchurch on your own. There's plenty of people here <laughs> who have done that maybe 13 times. Uh, you don't have to figure out how to confront betrayal in your team on your own. You don't have to figure out how to rest well and take a break and Sabbath on your own. This, guys, this room is filled with wisdom if we would all just kind of turn to one another and, and take advantage of it through mentoring. 
the worship team would come up, I just have one final little charge this morning. The first and really only thing you need to do to be qualified to pass on a sincere faith is to have one yourself. The best way to lead someone into intimacy with God and missional engagement with the world is for you to taste and to know intimacy with God and missional engagement with the world. A few weeks ago, a, a, a guy wa came walking into the hub at about 9.30 in the morning, and he was wearing a studio movie grill outfit. And he just kind of came and found, like, the first three or four people he could find. Just, like, ran. He just walked into the hub, and he just went and found, like, whoever he could find. And he, he just said, you know, he, and he had, a, like, a mental disability. And he just went, went to each person he could find, and he, could just say, he would just say, hey, I need, a, I need help. I need a counselor. And the security guards told him to go to the church, the underground. And he's just walking around the room and finding different people and saying, would you, would you help me? Would you help me? I have a problem. And, the pro and, and I, I came out of my office, and I just, I just came and found him, and I just said, what, what's going on? What do you need? And he just said, he was just going, like, he was halfway through a story that I missed the front end of. I didn't really, but something about having a hard time at work. There's something going on at work relationally. And I just said, look, and he had to be at work pretty soon at Studio Movie Grill. So I said, let me just walk you through the parking lot to your to Studio Movie Grill, and we'll just talk. And as we're talking, he's, he, we're getting out of the hub, and he was saying, everybody, he's, he's, he's a cert, like a food prepper in the kitchen. And he was just saying, everybody bullies him. Everyone calls him retarded. And he, and he was, and his first question for me, he was trying to explain this to me. And he was, and, and then immediately he just kind of like stopped his story and he turned to me and he said, how do you stop a bully from bullying you? And I was kind of like, I don't, what a great question. <laughs> what a great question. And I, I said, man, is there somebody who can like advocate for you? Is there somebody that you can talk to? And he said, and, and he was just going on with a story. They, they just keep calling me names. It's like, and, and, and eventually I got him to say, I just need someone to have my back. If somebody would just have my back, nobody's got my back. And I said, um, that would be helpful. That would be helpful. And he said, he said, should I just write names down on a paper? Is that how to, it, how to deal with bullying? I just write all their names on a paper. And I said, well, what would you do with the paper? He said, that's a great question. Do I take the paper? I said, you, you need to give that paper to your manager. Them dudes need fired. That's what needs to happen. And he said, the, the manager's brand new. He's been here like a week, and he just doesn't have my back. He doesn't have my back. So he's asking me, like, how do I deal with a bully? And then he's at, and I'm, and I'm like trying to work, like help him think through that. We're like workshopping that on the outside of Studio Movie Grill. And, and, then, and then I'm like, go to your supervisor. And he's like, my supervisor's new. And I'm trying to workshop that with him. Like, do you want me to talk to your supervisor? He's like, no, don't do that. And, and we're like talking with him. And then eventually he, he, he just starts like, he breaks down and he starts weeping. Unco I can't get him to talk. I have to like put my hands on his shoulders and be like, calm down. I, like we need, because he couldn't get any words out. And I, and I get him to calm down. I said, why are you so upset? What's going, but besides all this being difficult, what just happened? And he said, he said, I have a, I have a bad person inside of me that wants to just like punch all of them, yell at all of them, call them names return to them what they've done to me and I don't want that bad person inside of me 
and he, t- and he says, I watched one time on a Christian television sta- station where the, the leader would put his hand on the forehead of a person and the person would fall down and the bad person would come out of them. Could you do that for me right now? Oh, uh, <laughs> right outside studio movie girl. And I'm like, um, you know, what do you do? I mean, I, I, I was just kind of like, listen, I, I would love to do that. I would love to do that. But I need you to understand that you, you came to our church because you were looking for help. You're looking for counseling. And now you're, it sounds like you want me, the maybe like a person from that church, a leader or something, to come and, 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 and do something for you or whatever. I just need you to know, before I, before I pray with you, before I do something with you, I just need you to know that the source of power of that, bil- of that building is not the building itself. And the source of help is not the leader. It's not certain leaders who can or can't do that. person they know is the one that does that. And so I can do that with you right now. I can pray for you right now about that bad person inside of you. And, and we can try to deal with that. But I need you to know that, that Jesus is the one that actually wants to come and live in you. And he's the one who's going to get rid of that bad person. And he can be with you in your kitchen. He can be with you in Studio Movie Girl. He can be with you right when people are calling you names and you feel really angry. He can be with you on your way home. He can be with you on your way to church. You don't have to like, I'm, I appreciate you coming to our building. I'll still like grab coffee with you every month or something. And, 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 but you don't have to go looking for certain leaders or somebody to do that. He can be with you. He can do this with you. And, and, he's, and his eyes are kind of opening up. He's like, he's like, tell me more about that. I said, have you prayed before? He said, I tried once in seventh grade. It didn't work. <laughs> I said, I'd love to just sit with you and just pray, for you, pray with you for a moment. And I just, I just kind of want, I said, listen, I'll pray for the bad person in you to, to, for Jesus to actually get that bad person out of you and for Jesus to live in you. But then I want you to pray for me because I have that bad person in me sometimes too. So would you pray for me that Jesus would live in me and that bad person wouldn't live out in my body, but that Jesus would actually live out in my body? And he's like, you want me to pray for you? I said, yeah, you can touch my head. You can touch my head and do the thing. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> I'm like, you can. If he's, if he's in you, if you're like surrendered to him, he's in you. You have that power too. And we just sat, we kind of prayed for a moment. I said, let's just get coffee monthly and keep talking. Guys, I just tell that story because what Joey was doing, it's his name is Joey. What he was doing was he was in a a moment that required mentorship in a world void of mentoring. And where did he go? I just think it's beautiful that in that moment he would turn to the people of God. He would would just say, "Where, where can I find help? And he, and he had a question. He needed an answer to a question. He needed advocacy. He said, will you have my back? And he just needed somebody who would be like a spiritual director and just sit with him and just pray. And listen, I got no, listen, if I'm honest with you, I don't know how to answer his question about bullying. I had no idea how to answer it. I'm not qualified. I'm not a professional counselor. I don't know how to, how to deal with a lot of the things that he was bringing to me. But all I could do, all I could do is expose to him, I'm broken too. And I'm leaning on Jesus. Will you lean on him with me? Guys, all, all you have to do, you don't have to be like qualified in skills and like be amazing at certain things or know like everything about the Bible or theology. Just expose people to the sincerity of your faith. Expose people to your own, to your own brokenness and how you're kind of relying on Jesus in the midst of that. All I could do is hear his brokenness, pray for him, encourage him, share, share with him my brokenness. And somehow so far that's been enough for him. 
I've got to find him access to other things, and I've got to maybe talk to his manager at some point, but right now, he's somehow it's been sufficient for me to just try in some way, in some little minor broken way, to pass on the sincerity of my faith. That's it. And I just think there's people in this room who need that. And there's people in this room who need to be just giving it, passing it on to other leaders in the room. Would you resist the temptation to struggle alone and seek out the wisdom and experience of the Pauls and the Loises and the Eunices who have gone before you? Would you take responsibility for the next generation, the Timothys in your life, and let them in, not just for the sake of theology or skills, but to let them into the authenticity of your sincere faith? As we come to the table this morning, I want you to come holding on to those ways in which you're currently struggling, but you're struggling alone. You're wrestling with tensions alone. But there's people in the room, there's seasoned people that God is giving to you as a gift. And this morning, I want you to come to the table thankful for the ways in which Jesus is working in you, but also the ways in which Jesus has provided for you an amazing community to walk with you. And those of you in the room who are more seasoned, I just want you to come this morning asking Jesus at the table, say, saying thank you for the, 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 the sincerity of faith that you've entrusted to me. God, would you lead me to pass it on well to others, not just to your own kids, but to the next generation of leaders. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And when you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. So this morning, I do want it to feel like not just individuals coming to the table, but we come to the table as a family. We sit at the foot of the cross as a family. And we, and we realize that God is continuing to redeem us personally, but he's also continuing to redeem us as a family, as a community. And this morning we come thankful for his enduring work for us. When you're ready, the elements given for you.